Uh, yes, hello everyone. So today's Bible reading is going to be from Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You held me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swelled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to the worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. But today we're looking at Jonah 2. And I thought as we begin, we'd just look at some great rescues that have happened um, in, in my time on earth that I can remember. And probably the first great rescue that I really remember that st- stuck out to me as a kid was um, a guy by the name of Stuart Diver. Anyone remember this guy? Yes. He was uh, stuck in, in Threadbow. Uh, the, the snow came down, 5,000 tons of snow landed on his house and he got trapped. And for a week, I think it was, he was in there in these freezing conditions. Um, and he, he survived. It's this, this heroic a courageous tale of how they got him out and he was alive. And I, that was the moment it stuck in my head. I remember sitting on the couch when they said, he's out, he's free. And then I, I thought more, and then the, the Beaconsfield happened in 2006. Do you remember that? In Tassie. Um, two miners, Brett, uh, Brant Webb and Todd Russell, were trapped in a cage about a kilometer below the surface, only found because their two supervisors broke through the security safety barriers and, and thought, we've got to see if they're alive and could hear them yelling. And then there's this long, I think it was two, 14 night journey of slowly boring through uh, to rescue them. Heroic. They got through. Uh, and then more recently, I'm sure you remember the 2016 Thailand cave boy rescue. And how they had to get out the flooded cave. And just the story of ingenuity and engineering to rescue them trapped in the back of a cave. You read up how they did it and the intricate cave diving and medicine they had to give them and, and pulley system they had to rig up. They, they invented new things just to get them out. It's, it's incredible. They're great rescues. It's celebrating you know, human cleverness and, and ability to, to dig and dive and to think in, under pressurizing circumstances. It's, it's wonderful. And today we're going to hear another story of a great rescue. And it's the story of Jonah in a fish. And here's Jonah's story. This is what might be in the newspaper. In chapter 1, 
we learned that God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. He refused. He ran away, ended up on a ship in a God-appointed storm, stubbornly refused to pray after the sailors desperately asked him to. He would rather die by saying, throw me overboard, instead of repenting and following God. Yet the moment he hits the water and sinks down, God calms the storm and commands a fish to swallow him up, delivering him from the death he longed for. And now we meet him, three days and three nights, not afraid to die, not afraid to run, placed in this God-given, in-between state, where he's sitting in a fish. And chapter 2 is the next part of Jonah's journey. The next part of Jonah's understanding of God's mercy. You see, Jonah's on a journey in this book, like you and me are on a journey in our life, to understand God and His mercy more and more. Jonah hasn't got it figured out, clearly. And you and me haven't got it quite figured out either at times. But what we see in chapter 2 is this theme running through the book of Jonah. We saw last week, we argued that the whole book of Jonah... We meet a God who's filled with more mercy and is far more missional than his people are. And we see that in Jonah chapter 2 again. Because even in the depths of the ocean, Jonah has lots to learn. What's, What's interesting about this prayer, and we'll look at this, is that Jonah never says sorry for running, you know? He never says, God, forgive me for rebelling, or I'm sorry I haven't gone to Nineveh. What he learns is that from the strangest place prayer has ever been offered, in a fish's belly, he's thankful that God hears him. He's thankful that God hasn't abandoned him. And he says, from now on, God, I will obey you. And so we see this in the first verse. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. From inside the fish. This location of this prayer reflects the journey God is taking Jonah on to bring him back to life so that Jonah would understand God is full of mercy because the location echoes Jonah's heart. It's an echo of what's happening inside Jonah, physically outside. It is an example of the lengths that God goes to show his sovereignty and mercy. And the story of Jonah asks us to consider, I mean, who is this God that would show mercy to a prophet who was so set on running away from him, who's still so prideful and stubborn. Who is this God that doesn't write Jonah off because he's run off, but keeps going after him? What kind of mercy and kindness and love does God have to show this man and you and me and all people that he will go to such imaginable lengths, like like a fish, Or just think in numbers, the the talking donkey even. Or or think the most incredible miracle of all is that God was incarnate and became a man. What lengths that God would go. Because we see God has more ways of chasing us down with his mercy than we have of running away. So we can confess. With Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the big idea in chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because sometimes it takes a journey overboard, takes a journey as a prodigal, in a fish, 
for us to realize that God has sovereignly placed us in a location in our life that echoes our heart's rebellion from Him. But that's what God does in His mercy to bring us back. And I pray that as we kick around this passage today that we would be reminded of God's mercy for us, that His mercy is great, and that not only we would be reminded ourselves that many of you here that have family and friends that are far away from God as Jonah tried to be, that you too would be encouraged that they actually aren't that far. David once prayed in Psalm 139, where can I go to flee your presence? If I go to the utmost part of the earth or the depths of the sea, there you are. It's a bad paraphrase. But, but God knows where your friends and my friends and family are. And God is at work, even if we can't see it. No one saw anything, but the fish and Jonah and God. And God is at work in his mercy. So may we be encouraged by that today. So um, chapter 2, as we go through it, you'll notice a few things. Firstly, to point out, it's not in chronological order. It's not. It's a prayer. It's a song. It's a psalm. It's not... Jonah going from A to B, it's Jonah reflecting on his experience after he's in that fish. It has echoes of lots of other Psalms in it. You notice Psalm 116, Psalm 120, to name two of them, that are just dripping like this prayer. It's a, uh, we have a genre change and in the book. No longer it's narrative, but it switches to a prayer. The whole, and the point is, the whole drama slows from the fast-paced chapter one to the slow chapter two, it's a beautiful example of, of, of um, a chiasm, which is a Hebrew lit- literary device where the first, the second line emphasizes the first even more and repeats it in a cycle. So A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. That's a pattern. And the reason that's important is, is that we've left Jonah alone with God. And this is his heart cry. And how often emotions are best expressed in song, in prayer, not just in a narrative, to make us feel what he felt. There's this TV show called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. You may have seen it or heard of it. And she had basically, the characters relate to her through song. They don't know they're singing, but she can hear them and they sing. And they're just references to pop culture songs, but they relate the emotion and the experience they're feeling in that particular moment. And the, the cleverness of the show is how the songs can tell us what's going on far better than someone telling us. And that's what music and song does, right? And this is what's happening in Jonah. The the change is making us feel what Jonah felt, felt, slowing us down because it's him and God. The prayer, we'll break it down if you have the outline on your phone. In three sections, the first part is Jonah realizes how he got in the fish. He then reflects on this great distress Then he recounts God's mercy, and then we hear in the last verse God's reply to Jonah's prayer. So let's walk through that. So realization, three days, very big great storm, but at long last, Jonah's finally, finally submitted to the authority of his God. He says in in verse 2, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help, and you listened to my cry interesting it's the first time Jonah speaks to God in this whole journey and it's from a place of distress 
under the sea, dancing between life and death in a fish. You see, Jonah's distress isn't that he ran away from God and, and, is, and, is, and is not going to go to Nineveh at this moment. His distress is that he's, an, he's a mess, he's a wreck. He's gotten into this situation that there is no possible chance he could ever escape on his own, right? He needs help from deep in the realm of the dead. That's where he is at the moment. What does that mean, deep in the realm of the dead? Some translations, maybe it's for you, might say the belly of Sheol at this moment, which is really helpful. You see, water for ancient people wasn't a summer vacation, a tranquil holiday. It wasn't what you long for in Australia on a hot day to go to the beach and see all the pictures of hundreds of people everywhere. More often, for the Hebrew people, it was more like this. Fear, death, distress, the unknown chaos wasn't a pleasant experience, the sea. And Psalms often reflected the distress that a person feels by relaying it to the ocean. Often they'll say, I feel like I'm journeying down deep underwater to Sheol, to the pit, to Abaddon, places where darkness and separation exist. And this place, Sheol, is often personified. Here it's said to have a belly. Elsewhere we read that it had a mouth. It swallows up people. It's never satisfied with an appetite. It's this it's this place, theologically speaking, that's the opposite to God's glorious, joyful presence, right? Presence, right? Jonah understood to go to this place is the furthest place from God you could ever be. But you see, Jonah got his wish, didn't he? God said, uh, so Jonah said, I want to run, boop, off to Nineveh. And then now as he's going deep down in the waters, God says, sure, I'll send you to Sheol, almost. Not quite, he rescues him, but he's gone now. He's thinking, this is the furthest I can go, a bit further than probably what he thought he'd go. He can't run much further than this. But his distress of this moment has made him realize two really important things. Firstly, you can't escape from God, because he says, from deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened. And his distress is a God-given way to bring him back to life. In my distress I called, the Lord heard me. But he's still got a way to go. I mean, for all the, all the progress that Jonah's made, and you'd say, yeah, he had a, he had a, a spiritual kick in, kick in behind to make him realize this. He's still got a long way to go. Because being in distress and crying out for mercy and relief from that distress is not the same as repentance from sinful behavior. He's not repenting from running or disobeying He's not sorry for Nineveh and the fact he hasn't gone there yet. All that's happening is that he realizes that only God is sufficient to save from this watery tomb. Only God is merciful to save me. That's what he realizes from this place. It's not a bad thing to realize, by the way. Very good, in fact. Essential. Have you realized that? Only God is sufficient to save. Even to those who don't deserve it, God is merciful. Even those who haven't got their life together, God is merciful. In all their mess... God is merciful to you. And that's exactly what God wants to teach Jonah. God is full of mercy because Jonah now tastes the same mercy that God wants to show to Nineveh, you see? He's realized God is merciful. And that makes his reflection in verses 3 to 6 all the more amazing because Jonah now realizes, I can't run from God by being very clever. This is Jonah's reflection. Three days to get to this part, by the way. 
But he finally got here and says, you held me into the depths. All your waves and breakers swept over me. See, chapter 1, we don't know why Jonah ran yet. We don't find out till chapter 4, verse 2, because we need to see the God he's running from first. Who is this God? What's, what's, what's this God like that Jonah's running from? And in this chapter, makes us realize that behind all our choices, that same God is at work, mercifully drawing us to himself. For Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, he would have viewed the world as theistic. That is, he made choices, he made decisions, but he's accountable to God for those choices. God's sovereign authority over Jonah and Jonah's actions both work together. But what Jonah realizes is that God's mercy is always at one step ahead of him, right? Think about it this way. I, years ago, climbed St. Mary's Peak in the Flinders. And if you've ever gone to the Flinders and know anything about St. Mary's, it's the highest mountain in South Australia. Not very big, actually, on the global scale, but we've got a claim to something. And um, we went the long way. I didn't know what the long way was, but you go around through the basin. It's a big mountain range. You go through the basin and up. And lots of little mountains to climb up before you get there. And we, I went with two other guys. We had no idea. We just thought, yeah, go the long way. You know, that's what you do when you're, you know, 15 and go hiking somewhere you've never been before and never hiked in your life. You just do the longest, biggest one you can find. And that's what we did. I didn't have a map or anything. Just follow the track. And every time we got to a hill, I thought, we're here. And every time I climbed the hill, what did I see? More mountains. And that oh, went on and on. And then we finally got to the top, and there's me in the middle. Handsome man there, I am. At the top of St. Mary's Peak, after I think it was six or seven hours we got there. Um, it was freezing, I remember. But we hiked a long way, and every time I thought I've arrived, I've got, every time I thought I'd made it, I was greeted with another mountain range. This is a bit like Jonah in the fish. No matter how long you journey, no matter how many decisions you make, you can never get ahead of God and His mercy and His sovereignty. You can never say, oh, God, come and catch up to me because I'm here on this mountain and you don't even know what's over there yet. No matter how far you climb and realize and understand God, you get to the top of the mountain range and you think, I know God so well, and you get there and go, oh, there's more. Hundreds of kilometers stretching on further of God's mercy and grace are waiting for you. And just when you think you made all these decisions and your life's perfectly worked out like Jonah probably thought, he got to the mountain range and went, oh, there's more of God to know and discover. You can never say, I'm dictating the terms to you, God, because there's always more mercy and grace over the mountain range. And this banishment, this moment, has the effect God wanted on Jonah too. Because Jonah looks towards God's holy temple, he says. The location where God dwells, the location where sacrifices and mercy are offered. Jonah reflects on the God of his situation because God's actually getting him back on track. That's what God's trying to do. So you realize that you're in the belly of a fish, you got to the bottom. God, have, I, I get it, you're sovereign, you're merciful. How do you recover from that? Because he hasn't been spat out the fish yet when he says this. He's still in there, you know, gurgling around. He's spiraling down to the roots of the mountain, he says. He's feeling as if he's barred in forever below the surface of the earth. Where does your help come from? Well, that's what Jonah recounts now in 6 to 9. He's got a new resolve. Profound realization of God's love and where his salvation comes from. Look at verse 8. 
He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Probably a better way is to say God's loyal love for them. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, and it has this idea of generosity and love, compassion, commitment, all rolled into one word. We can't capture it in English, but think loyal love. He reflects on that. Deep in the fish, God's love is loyal. God's love is deep. As he's floating deep underwater, he's reminded that idols don't love. Idols aren't generous or loyal to me. Whereas God's love for him is the most valuable treasure Jonah could ever possibly have. Because then he realizes in verse 9 that salvation comes from the Lord. You see, God's merciful, not because Jonah prays. It's because God is already merciful that he responds so graciously with mercy when Jonah prays, right? Salvation's never a little bit of me and a little bit of God. It's all God. (laughs) That's what mercy and grace are. Ultimately, Jonah, me, you, can only ever be a recipient of God's mercy. Have you realized that, like Jonah? Are you amazed at God's great mercy to you today? And then just as the sailors respond on the ship with with, uh, vows and sacrifices, respond to God's mercy, Jonah does the same thing. He makes vows. He says, I'll make sacrifices. Can't do it in the fish, but I will. Temple language. In 2 verse 4, he says, I'll look to your temple. In verse 7, my prayer rose to your holy temple. In verse 9, I will sacrifice to you. I think at this moment, Jonah's thinking, I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll go to the place, the location of the temple where you do sacrifices, right? Because for Jonah, God is located in a space, in a place. He's run from that place. He realized that God's the sovereign one over the heaven and earth, so he can't really run. But he says, I need to go back to that space to sacrifice to God, to live a new life of vowing to obey him in the future. Perhaps he's thinking, now that Nineveh, the whole business is behind me, I can hopefully get out the fish, go back to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. Let's forget the Nineveh thing ever happened, maybe, and we'll just focus on the future, and that was the past, you know, that sort of thinking. It's almost what you think when you hear verse 10 in God's reply, because he says, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's very ironic. Jonah's still prideful and doesn't quite have it all together, and it's almost like God saying, well, that's what I think of your prayer, Jonah. <clears throat> out he comes. Because Jonah doesn't, uh, God doesn't talk to Jonah in that moment. He just lets the fish vomit him out. But but God is merciful. He's always going to respond with mercy. Because you see, it's taken a fish, but Jonah has a breath of new obedience. He talks in the future, doesn't he? In verse 9 and 8 and 9. I will, I will, I will. He doesn't have a specific resolve to obey, to go to Nineveh or anything, but... He's going to work that problem out. He'll get there and we'll see that, what happens. But now, right now, at this moment, before we know anything else, he's realized running is not going to be the way to find the answer he's looking for in life. What does Jonah come to realize in chapter 2? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a great rescue, isn't it? That even from a belly, fish, fish's belly, it's not the end of Jonah. It's not the end of God's mercy. And it reminds us that it's not the end of God's mercy to us either. Because as we keep reading who this God is in, in the Bible, as we keep going in the story, we learn that, God, that, that salvation still belongs to the Lord. 
Salvation still belongs to the Lord. All the epic rescues from human to human we see, they're so great. Very clever, heroic people endure and work very hard and tirelessly and fearlessly to rescue those trapped, those that can't rescue themselves. Other people come and do that for them, right? And that's wonderful. But in all rescues, no matter how small or big, like Jonah's, they're also a way of helping us look forward to another great rescue that God has done for each of us. Because many years later, Jesus, when he was on earth, he picked up on Jonah chapter 2 and said, I know this story. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus saw more than just a sinking, sad little prophet. He saw an echo of his mission as well. Because Jonah only went to the depths of the sea, but Jesus went into the depths of death itself. Jonah was crushed by the waves and the seaweed, but Jesus was crushed by the wrath of God. A wrath that actually had Jonah's rebellion on it, and the sailors, and Nineveh, and me and you. And just as Jonah's watery tomb wasn't the end of his life, so too Jesus' three days in the earth wasn't the end of his life either. Because God's great mercy raised Jesus up from the dead, guaranteeing you and me, no matter how deep we go, no matter how far we run, Jesus meets us there with his mercy. A mercy to change us just like it started to change Jonah, to recalibrate us on the course of life under him and with him. It's a change that makes us realize, like chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. A salvation that meets us with mercy in all stages of life that comes only from the cross of Jesus. Band, come on up. Perhaps you're here today and you feel a bit overwhelmed. Maybe that's not an understatement, but you feel overwhelmed, like Jonah did here. Maybe you're feeling far from God, not really sure what to do. Maybe you're realizing that in all the confusion, all the voices in life, you just need someone to come and rescue you, to reach out with mercy like God did by sending a fish to Jonah. Maybe you know people that were once close to Jesus, but are now far away, and it's hard to see them, the decisions they make, the life they live, and and you need mercy just as much as they do, so that you can show them mercy as well. Maybe you're feeling a drift towards Jesus, like Jonah was. And so why not come back to God's mercy? God's mercy is bigger than the circumstances in which we find ourselves in, bigger than the fish that Jonah was in. And why not ask God for mercy, like Jonah, realizing that he is the only one who can save? Why not ask for mercy for those who are far away and mercy for yourself? And and just as Jonah too is a genre change, the narrative turns into a prayer and a song. Let's do that right now. We'll have a genre change from me talking to you singing. To sing, his mercy is more. And maybe in this song, you would bow your head and your heart, ask for God's mercy to release you like it did for Jonah through the cross of Jesus. 
And then would you sing with us as we celebrate God's mercy to us as well? Isn't God's mercy good? Would you please stand and sing His mercy is more?